Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Michael Rhodes, the Director and Assistant Professor of Community Transformation at the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies at Union University. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen and is the co-author of the book, Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. Prior to coming to MCUTS, he served as the Director of Education at Advance Memphis, a Christian community development organization in the economically impoverished community the Rhodes family now calls home. Michael Rhodes, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Marty. So are you in Memphis right now? I am. I'm sitting in my office here at the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies at Union University and enjoying the view out my window. Now, y'all do call that place M-Cuts, right? We do. Yeah, we do. Uh, we call it M-Cuts because our our name is such a mouthful, but we, we recently, as of August 1, officially became the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies at Union University, which we're excited about. Oh, that is pretty cool. So that's a new merger partnership with uh, uh, Union University, whose main campus is in Jackson, Tennessee. So now you can call yourself Super M Cuts. <laughs> that's right. Or maybe yes, not. Yes, and we will. <laughs> um, I'll be working on the t-shirts immediately. The dad jokes are never going to end. <laughs> Oh, man. So um, I ran across you. Well, why don't you just, first of all, uh, just give us the, the, the 411, give us the bio on Michael Rhodes. Yeah. Um, gosh. So I, I am a lifelong Memphian here, uh, and this is my home in this community. And um, I guess the most important parts of my story are that my, my, um, my parents raised me at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis and that's where I fell in love with Jesus and fell in love with his word and with the scriptures. Um, and the, the real strong uh, sense in that congregation that you, you know, you study God's word and what it says to do, you know, you take seriously and you, you go out and try to do it. And so, you know, I was shocked uh, when Dr. John Perkins, the legendary civil mm-hmm. rights leader and um, hero of the faith, came and pointed out how much the Bible talked about justice and reconciliation across ethnic lines and uh, poverty and all this stuff that I didn't know was in there <laughs> and really, uh, really just stoked my imagination. And so, um, you know, Memphis, for those who don't know, Memphis is, is um, a majority minority city. It's, it's a majority African-American city, um, but it's one of the most racially segregated and one of the most impoverished economically speaking cities in the country. And 
I was just separate from all that. Mm. And so Dr. Perkins message really confronted me personally and, um, studied community development at covenant college with Brian Ficker, uh, and others. At that's, in Chattanooga. Corbett, that's on the mountain that's, in Chattanooga, right? That's right. On lookout mountain. Yeah. And, uh, some of your listeners may know them from the book when helping hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really paradigm shifting. And then after college, I spent a couple years working on community development projects in Kenya. And then again, in South Memphis here where I live now, um, in, in our Memphis community. Um, and then four years ago I, I came here to MCUTS. Um, and my, my, um, I guess my personal calling and sense of vocation is, is to help God's people, hear what God's word says about um, justice and mercy for the poor and marginalized. Um, And so that's really my, I I feel like that's sort of my sense of call. And um, yeah, maybe that's enough for about me to get started. Very cool. So your book is called Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. So that's sounding fairly comprehensive there. (laughs) Um, why did you write this book or your co-author actually with a guy named Robbie Holt? Uh, what, what was the impetus behind writing this, this volume? Yeah. So that's a great question. So, um, when I came back to Memphis after living in Kenya, my wife and I moved into South Memphis to work at this really incredible Christian community development organization called advanced Memphis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we served one zip code where my wife and I and our family have lived for the last eight years. Um, it is one of the poorest zip codes, economically speaking, in our state. And we were doing job training, financial literacy, uh, entrepreneurship support, GED education, all with adults in this one community. And um, that journey has really been one of the most powerful things in my own life and the life of my family. But one thing that happened is, um, you know, because I grew up here and I had good connections with more suburban churches and 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 um, more affluent congregations, when those congregations would have like, you know, uh, a conference or, or a Sunday school that wanted to know more about advance, um, they'd have me come out and talk. And I started to realize that most of the economic discipleship that happens in the church mm-hmm. is basically uh, 100% focused on how much you give with the money you've already earned, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you've earned money, you've got it in your pocket. We'd like you to give a greater percentage of it, right? And the kind of the most, um, like radical version of that is, you know, I think it's one of the Wesley's who said, make all you can save all you can give all you can. Right. right? So the idea is just like, if we're excellent in the workplace, we'll have more to give. Right. But, I found myself in this predicament where what I needed was business owners and influencers who would hire graduates of our job training program, even though those job training graduates had a felony record and little work experience. Okay. Right. So what I was saying was we need you guys to take a risk in the production side of your economic life, in your actual workplace life, you know, in the way that you're earning money. Mm Mm-hmm. If these guys with felony records are going to have a shot, because six out of 10 employers won't hire somebody with a criminal record, according to one study. So we're going to need more people to say yes to these folks. And maybe you should do that because you love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if we've got an entrepreneur, what I need is not just donations from you. It's it's mentoring. It's investing. It's if you're in charge of procurement, considering this person as a source of procurement for your 
business or your church, right? Um, and so I started realizing that we needed people to do stuff <laughs> uh, in their economic life beyond just give money away. But we weren't talking about that very much in the church. And then I was earning a master's in Bible, moving into a PhD program uh, in Bible and ethics. And I started realizing there, the Bible has all sorts of stuff about how you do justice and mercy for the poor and the marginalized, not just with the stuff that you've earned, but like in the way you manage your field and in mm. the way that you treat workers and the way that you interact with other family farms through lending and, and who you eat dinner with and where you and, – and so all of a sudden it felt like to me there was this big disconnect between the Bible, which says every part of your economic life is an opportunity – to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed, mm -hmm. not least in the way we engage the marginalized. But in the church, we're hyper-focused in traditional charity and generosity. So that's the problem that we set out to try to solve in the book. How do we have, how do we help the church have disciples of Jesus who are saying, every aspect of my economic life, I can bend towards God's kingdom. Not just the way I give, but the way I work and earn and spend and save and invest and share and everything else. So um, the book is kind of divided into uh, a number of keys. You have the worship key, the community key, the work key, uh, the equity key, uh, the creation care key, and the rest key. And then uh, mm. those are all followed up by uh, chapters of what looks like uh, practical uh, practical suggestions or what this would look like if we were actually doing it rather than just sitting around mm -hmm. talking about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know that we have time to go through all of those, but why don't you summarize what each of those means and then maybe how they're related to each other and we can just play off of that some. Yeah, sure. So um, you've, you've nailed the structure of the book. Each key has a chapter on the Bible, that theme in the Bible, and then a chapter on people who are living that out. And those chapters about how people are living that out end with kind of a list of suggestions for how you could live it out. And we try to make the, how you could live it out application, like sort of a choose your own adventure story. So we give you options related to your church, related to your home life and related to your workplace. And you can just kind of pick the stuff that works for you to get started. Right. So the worship key basically starts out by saying, we believe that at, at bottom economic discipleship begins with worshiping God, right? That worship is an economic issue. Okay, right? God Let, calls let's, us. Uh, Michael, let's, yeah, let's yeah, pause yeah. one second because you've used okay. it, you've used a phrase now a couple of times that I can assure you uh, a lot of folks in, that have been in churches their whole lives have never heard the term economic <laughs> discipleship. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So why don't you give a, a a really succinct definition of what you mean when you say that, and then come back to to the worship. Yeah, so by economic life, we mean how you work, earn, spend, save, give, invest, etc. Like, right, everything that we do as we interact with the production and consumption of goods and resources, right? Okay. That's what we mean by our economic life. And so by economic discipleship, we just mean how do we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus in all of those areas, okay. right? So if discipleship is just following Jesus as the king— how do we follow Jesus as the king in all those areas of our economic life? So this is kind of like Martin Luther's conversion of the heart, conversion of the pocketbook type thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Okay. Yeah, I like that. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so so uh, that kind of economic discipleship begins with worship. Like we, 
God demands that we worship him with all of who we are, right? And that includes uh, the way that we spend our money and share our money and earn our money. And, and we sort of set that idea up of, of worship being an economic issue by pointing out that idolatry is also an economic issue. Oh, so, dude. for instance, if you look in the Old Testament and you look at the gods that the nations are tempted to worship, right, uh, those gods are always gods like Baal that promise to give you rain for your crops and fat cows and healthy children, right? Wow. So Israel is tempted to worship false gods, at least in part, because those false gods make economic promises, right? That is really and then when, G- you know, when Jesus shows up, that's the background within which he says, you cannot serve God and money, right? Money acts like a god that we worship to get what we want that we don't think that God will be able to deliver on. So if idolatry is an economic issue, we just start by saying, we begin by saying it's, it's, it belongs to God. Everything that we have, everything that we are, is to be given to God in worship in, in a holistic sort of way. And so if that's the big kind of theological idea behind the worship key, the practice is sacrificial giving. So what does it look like to say, we're going to worship God by giving in ways that cost us? Mm-hmm. And we've got some incredible stories of people who give um, in, in big ways and small ways, but in all in sacrificial ways. And we've got some ideas on how to begin doing that in your own life. Well, sacrificial um, giving then uh, almost a, a demonstration of I'm going to show that money is not by God by giving more away than I think I can afford to. Yeah, yeah. I think money, it's weird to say, but when Jesus says you can't serve God and money because you'll hate the one and love the other, it, it, he's almost saying money wants your worship. Wow. Right? It left to itself uh, – you know, those the love of money is a root of, of all evil is a root of all evil. It leads you to temptation and attract. I mean, when Paul says that in Timothy, he makes it sound like money is is a character, mm-hmm. right? That's trying to lure us away from God. And and money can act that way in our lives. And so one way to resist idolatry and embrace worship is through sacrificial giving. Okay, good. Instead of giving our worship to money and stuff, we give it to God through sacrificial giving. And it sacrificial giving dethrones uh mammon or money from the throne of our hearts if we've begun to worship it right that's good um and we think sacrificial giving is just one of the things the bible talks about you know second corinthians 8 you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich he became poor so that through his poverty he might make many rich right Mm -hmm. and that's in the context of paul talking about the macedonians whose poverty welled up into rich generosity right right so the sacrificial giving thing we think is really important, and that's kind of where economic discipleship and faithfulness begins. Second key is the community key. So if you're like, okay, God wants me to worship him through giving, I need to pay attention to what he says about giving. Very, very, very quickly, you're going to find out that one of the ways that God wants us to give is to the materially and economically poor. Mm-hmm. Like the Bible, you know, if you just – if you prick the Bible, it bleeds God's heart for the poor, right? So – if you're like, what should I do with my stuff? God is very, 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 very regularly saying you should give it in ways that uh, uh, serve and care for the poor. But the problem is that so often when we go to do that work, our model for giving to the poor is what we call the soup kitchen strategy. And the soup kitchen strategy says, okay, we've got some people who have soup and some people who need soup. So we're going to get them all in the room 
we're going to divide the room in half on either side of the soup stand. And the theory of change is the soup havers scoop their heaping hot resources into the empty bowls of the soup meters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we think that that model has enormous problems, not least that it falls short of God's vision. We think that God's vision is not a soup kitchen where everybody gets fed, but a potluck where everybody brings a plate. Right. Right. So if a soup kitchen, you've got havers, haves and have nots at a potluck, you don't even have a potluck until everyone is giving plates to everyone else Mm -hmm. and receiving plates from everyone else. Right. And so the idea of the community key is our, our, our economic lives are aimed first at love of God and then at love of neighbor. And so the goal of our economic lives is a community of giving and receiving, right? And so the, the practice that we talk about in the community key is actually feasting. Mm-hmm. So, so across scripture, when God wants people from across socioeconomic lines or ethnic lines or gender lines or whatever to build community, he throws a feast. Mm-hmm. It's all about so the food, talk- baby. That's right. That's right. I'm into the food. You know? uh, I, I just I just finished up my my. Uh, if you could see me, your listeners would know. Unfortunately, I'm way into the food. Uh, I actually just finished my my PhD dissertation on the feast in Deuteronomy 14 and the oh, feast cool. in First Corinthians 11. So so these are 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 symbols of how our economic life is to be aimed at love of God and love of neighbor. Um, and and you know the 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 um. The, the Bible is actually for feasting, yeah. right? The Bible doesn't say just fast all the time or, or be sad. The Bible is for feasting. Yeah. Wipe, Deuteronomy wipe, 14, wipe the tears off your face and eat. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Deuteronomy 14 says, bring your tithe to the sanctuary and eat it, yeah. right? Get, what, <laughs> get, get whatever you want. You want your wine, meat, strong drink, whatever you want. But the constraint is when you come, you got to feast by household. Mm. And the household includes the immigrant and the refugee and the Levite who doesn't have land and the orphan and the widow and the hired hand and the debt slave. They're all part of the family. They're all at the table. They're part of the goal of our economic life. You know, so we just, talk about feasting in that way. I was just reading a, um, uh, a book. I can't even remember. It's just laying around here at my desk. Uh, and they talked about in some, um, in some cultures that are more communal than most American cultures are that anybody who was in the house was considered family, not just the family yes. members. Uh, anyone yes. was con- So if you were, if you were doing something for the the family, then anybody who happened to be in the house was the family, not yes. just the mom and dad and the sisters. That's right. And actually the feast feasting, it's like, okay, so in my, in my classes, sometimes I say every one of us has auntie so-and-so or uncle so-and-so who, who isn't in fact any real kin to you. Right. right? <laughs> like, like I had growing up, I had uncle Mark, you know, and, uh, Mark Randall's this heroic, great servant of the Lord who was uncle Mark and he wasn't any blood kin to mine. He was yeah. just my dad's best friend. Yeah. But one of the ways today that you know who your fake family is, you know, is who's at Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. right? And the same dynamic is true in the ancient world. Uh, one of the leading scholars on Deuteronomy says, to feast together is to be kin or to become kin. Wow. And and actually, the primary strategy, I think, God's primary strategy for uh, empowering and assisting the poor in Scripture is by 
making inroads for them to become fully vested parts of the family of God. In, in other words, one major teaching related to economic justice in Scripture is that the, the community of faith should just treat the most vulnerable like family. Because family feasts together, family shares together, family works together, family gives together, right? Yeah. And so, so that's where that potluck model comes in. That's awesome. I'm um, talking to Michael Rhodes. He's the author of Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. And we'll be back right after this. If you'd like to place an ad on an episode of Uncommentary, please email Marty Duren, M-A-R-T-Y-D-U-R-E-N, no dashes, dots, or underscores, at yahoo.com, Marty Duren at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to email you a rate sheet, and we can talk about a 15-second, 30-second, or 60-second ad on an upcoming episode of Uncommentary. Let me know, and we will work it out. Now back to this week's episode. Okay, I'm back with Michael Rhodes, and I think we're headed into key number three. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So so we start with love God, love neighbor. Our economic life is aimed at love of God and love of neighbor. And aiming at love of neighbor means aiming at this sort of potlucking community um, then that where everybody can bring a plate. The next key, the work key, we look at the way that work is the means by which even the most marginalized members ought to be able to bring their gifts into the community. Mm-hmm. So in Ephesians 4, Paul says, well, the one who's been stealing no longer steal, but do something good with his hands so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Yeah. So, so the idea there is that even thieves ought to, through work— be able to bring great plates to the potluck. That's awesome. Right? And so and so we look at, well, what are some of the things that prevent people from being able to bring a plate to the potluck through work in our world? And, of course, one thing is criminal records. You know, uh, In one major multi-city study, six out of ten employers said they would definitely not or probably not hire someone with a criminal record. Uh, people with low educational attainment, I believe it's I believe it's as little as one in 10 jobs in our country that's available to someone who lacks a high school credential. Wow. Um, there are enormous racial injustices in our economy. So uh, there's been a study that's been replicated. You, know, you send the exact same re- uh, resume out to all these employers. And if the name at the top is Jamal, mm-hmm. he gets half as many callbacks as if the name at the top is Brendan. Yeah. Right. So just straight up racial barriers in the workplace. People with disabilities uh, are often face enormous barriers in the workplace. And so we sort of name those and say, well, what would God's solution be to make sure that work is the means by which even folks facing those obstacles can bring their best plate to the potluck through work? And we hone in on the gleaning laws. Because mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, you get these beautiful stories of how God says, look, uh, you know, you got a farm. That's the family business. Mm-hmm. It's your business. It's your farm, but when you go to harvest, leave the edges of the fields unharvested, which which in our terms is like saying, leave some profits in the field. Yeah. W- why? So that the orphan, the immigrant, and the widow, and the poor, the most vulnerable, can work in your fields. And, and what's crazy about the gleaning laws is they allow the person who's in need to not simply be the recipient of charity, right? They're actually able to bring a plate to the potluck through mm-hmm. work. Uh, the business owner is doing justice and mercy in the way they run their business, not just what they do with what they produce. And the business owner, the most powerful person in society and the least powerful person in society 
are shoulder to shoulder in the same workplace. Yeah. Right. So they're together. And you see all this in the story of Ruth, right? Yep. Ruth is this like, like complete outsider. She's, she's the wrong gender. She's the wrong ethnicity. She's the wrong religion. She's the wrong status as a widow, a childless widow, all this stuff in the beginning of the book. She's like completely out. And by the end of the book, she's like the great grandmother of King David mm -hmm. and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. And how is that possible? And, and what it is, is she brings her hustle and her hard work and her desire to bring a good plate to Naomi and Boaz opens up his field to the graining walls. Oh, yeah. Ruth, and, Ruth, Ruth brought the hustle all right. There's no question yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so yeah, that's right. So her gifts and her abilities and her hard work and her service, plus Boaz's willingness to leave profits in the field, allow this complete outsider to become a complete insider, fully vested, given gifts in the community. And we talk about how we, we talk about, we, we call them gleaning job hires. Mm -hmm. And so we just highlight businesses uh, that have partnered with nonprofits to help um, uh, hard to hire populations get jobs. This morning, I was with a group called Economic Opportunities. They partner with for-profit businesses to bring in groups of people with felony records to help them work in those companies. Oh, wow. And a lot of those companies are saying yes to that program because they love Jesus and they want to bend their economic lives towards his kingdom. And we look at churches who do stuff like this, businesses that have been started. Um, there is a uh, phenomenal business uh, in Atlanta, uh, Amplio Consulting, I believe is the name, that their their reason for existing is to be a staffing service that creates good job opportunities for refugees. Wow. And they're doing a great job. And their reason for existence is to create good job opportunities for refugees. And we see all of these individuals do this. You know, if you're... Um, if you're in, and if you're thinking, I don't have any of that kind of influence, you know, go find out who's working to increase minority owned businesses in your community and figure out how you can hire some of those minority owned businesses in your own life or in your own church, mm -hmm. you know, and, and help create opportunity by leaving some of your fields unharvested. That's a work key, okay. uh, that we talk about. And then the fourth key says, okay, what about the, is the equity key? So here, you know, if the gleaning laws say economic justice requires that everybody has an opportunity to bring a plate through work today, the equity key says ultimately God's vision is straight out for, for society and economy, is straight out of Micah 4. Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and nobody shall make them afraid. And that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the phrase uh, when Israel was being blessed and prospering. That was kind of the phrase that described their economic situation, right? Uh, everybody yes. sitting under their own fig tree, and nobody has a yes. Or something. Yeah. And, and that's right. And and sitting under your own vine and fig tree is like really um, it does not make sense to us. Yeah. It's, it's like who <laughs> cares? Right. You know, it's like I got a garden in my front yard, and it's terrible. You know, my wife's like, when are you going to pull up all those measly tomatoes that yeah. did not produce? I'm lay under know? my tomato plant. <laughs> right. But in Israel, in an agrarian economy, having a farm, having a field. Having a vine and fig tree means that you have an economic place to stand, mm. an economic portion to steward, a stake, a social stake in the neighborhood. And the idea of an economy in which everyone sits under their own vine and fig tree is an economy where everyone has access to the stuff that makes stuff, right? Yeah. Everyone's got an economic place to stand and a portion to steward, a, a, a place to be socially within the community. And, and so if, if you ask how does that vision get fleshed out – 
in the Old Testament. It's through the division of the land. When God brings his people in the division of the land, he says each family gets a plot mm. in the promised land, a place to stand, a portrait, a family business, if you will, that if stewarded will create uh, wine to be shared at the feast and sold in the marketplace, right? Um, and then God says, okay, I'm going to divide up the land equitably, and then you're going to go at it, right? And there's going to be uh, harvesting and planting and, and, and buying and selling and all that stuff. And I know that this every vine and fig tree economy is going to get off kilter from time to time, mm -hmm. right? Like God knows us so well. So he knows somebody's, you know, Michael's going to get his vine and fig tree and he's going to sleep in all the time and he's going to get a gambling addiction. And so I'm going to lose my econ my vine and fig tree to Marty, who's like, you know, the Proverbs 31 woman or something, you know, and then, <laughs> and then, you know, John is going to figure out how to cheat Joe out of his vine and fig tree. And so he's going to, you know, give him a bad loan or move a bounty stone and hustle him out of his property. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, family member Susie, there's just going to be a hurricane or a famine. It's going to wipe out her crop. So, you know, within a few years, everyone's no longer sitting under their own vine and fig tree. And so God gives them all sorts of policies and practices and strategies to make sure that nobody, no family gets permanently displaced from their vine and fig tree. And that culminates in the year of Jubilee. Yep. Where every 50 years, God says, okay, every 50 years, no matter what has happened, no matter how you lost your land, whether you lost your land because you're a sluggard and a drunkard, or whether you lost your land because you're the victim of injustice and oppression, whether you lost your land because of natural disaster, no matter what, every 50 years, blow the trumpet on the Day of Atonement, hmm. the day that the community is saying God has forgiven us our sins— and on that same day, everyone who's lost their vine and fig trees, their farms and fields, gets them back. That is so amazing. It is a beautiful image. And people sometimes, they hear this and like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, is God a communist? Like, did he not take Econ 101? Like, what's, <laughs> that's not the point. Yeah. Right? Like, that is not the point. The point is uh, there is a lot of, a lot of, of like, market activity and, and, you know, there's a lot of growing and selling and buying mm -hmm. and lending and sharing and all that in the community. But God's saying every 50 years, I don't want Michael's kids. I don't want Rose's kids eating in a soup kitchen. I want Rose's kids bringing a plate to the potluck. Yeah. So that's and the, I'm that's willing the, to yeah. get into the business of yeah. my people's economic lives to ensure that no family gets permanently marginalized. Yeah, that's the thing, because some of this, uh, on the 50th year, some of this land is not going back to the guy who actually lost the land. It's going to his kid or grandkid, sure. so it, it, it stops uh, generational poverty before it takes hold for generation after generation after generation. That's exactly right. Like, the Old Testament is very, very clear. It knows that stuff's going to happen. Some are going to be... Harder workers, some are going to be oppressed, some are going to face natural disaster. It knows that stuff's going to mm -hmm. happen, right? But it's very realistic about putting in stop gaps to ensure that what you don't get is is uh, uh, multi-generationally poor families that get pushed out of the society and the economy over time. Wow. It's got limits on that. And the big kahuna is, is of course, um, uh, the year of Jubilee. And, and so the practice there for us, uh, we talk about a specific practice in terms of impact investing. So investing our money to, to build wealth uh, in people who, who have, have lost wealth or been deprived of wealth. So um, uh, in our economy, it's not vines and fig trees that are the primary asset 
in wealth building. It's things like real, uh, it's things like home ownership. It's things like knowledge, you know, education, mm-hmm. and it's things like entrepreneurship. So we highlight a bunch of ways that people are like in. And I should say first, when you get to the equity key, um, we face a huge problem in this country because for 400 years we've embraced an anti-jubilee policy, mm-hmm. right? So in our city the majority of our citizens are descendants of people who were enslaved, brought here as slaves, right? Denied the ability to gain access to farms and fig trees uh, under Jim Crow and um, um, sharecropping, specifically denied access to vines and fig trees in the middle of the 20th century when we had huge wealth building initiatives in this country. We're trying to encourage home ownership uh, through um, um, FHA federally backed loans. mortgages, yeah, yeah. yeah FHA backed mortgages, and we're we're trying to encourage college education uh, through the GI Bill. Those programs were deployed specifically in the South to deprive black borrowers and black veterans, mm-hmm. and then that denial expo- exposed uh, black would be homeowners to all sorts of predatory lending mm-hmm. contracts. And et cetera, and so, so we, uh, and that's not even addressing our country's treatment of of First Nations peoples, right. of nation Native Americans, right? So we have an entire history of anti-jubilee, right? And so the question is, how do we begin to declare a jubilee uh, in our economic practices? And we look at things like investing in minority-owned businesses, investing in technical uh, career track education for people who've been failed by our educational system, supporting home ownership in neighborhoods that have really been afflicted by injustice in our housing markets and and that sort of a thing. And so that's the equity key for us. And let me just say this, by the way, I I do love the Old Testament. Uh, Sometimes people say, oh, you know, the Jubilee, that's just an Old Testament thing and they never did it or something. Listen, when Isaiah wants to define the gospel, right, in Isaiah 61, Mm -hmm. that the Messiah is going to bring, he says the Messiah is going to declare the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. Wow. In Jesus' first sermon, he quotes mm-hmm. Isaiah talking about the year of Jubilee and says, I'm the one in whom that is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm-hmm. When the early church is sharing their possessions and it says, there were no needy persons among them, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 15 where it's saying, if you forgive debts, if you keep people from being pushed off the land, there need be no poor among you. So the Jubilee is not some isolated bit of legislation that should be left behind in the past. It is one of the driving theological images that inspired not just Moses, but Isaiah, Jesus, and the early church, right? So it still has the power to inspire us today, I think. Wow. So we're in, what, key number five? So that's that's four, right? Okay, so so if it's love God and love neighbor, and the love neighbor means everybody brings a plate to the potluck, the work key and the equity key say, how do we make sure in our economic lives that everybody can bring their best plate? And then the last two are about how do we work in ways that, that go with, sort of go with the grain of God's creation? You know, mm-hmm. this, this metaphor of like when you cut wood, it's a lot harder to cut wood uh, against the grain than right. with the grain. Yeah. So how do we live our economic lives with the grain of the universe? And we talk about two basic ways. One is by recognizing that God loves the created world and wants us to be good stewards of the created world. And we talk about ways of doing that uh, in terms of 
uh, how we treat animals that are being raised for food, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about crea- practices of creation care. And we start with really, really simple stuff like recycling and uh, purchasing meat from farmers who are trying to treat uh, uh, particularly pigs and chickens in humane ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people freak out about that. But again, you know, uh, 3,500 years ago, in the law of the Old Testament, it says that if you're using an ox in the field to plow, you can't muzzle him while he treads out the grain. Right. He gets in other words, to eat while he's working. That's right. And and you're going to eat that ox eventually, mm-hmm. right? So apparently, even if you're going to eat the animal, there's some there's something about how that animal is designed that God delights in it. That means that we're to honor it, even in the way we engage it, right? Well, I heard Joel. Even I, going, I heard Joel Salatin go ahead, say. Go ahead. Yeah, I heard Joel Salatin say one time uh, that the verse in the law about uh, if your ox is in the ditch on the Sabbath, you can get it out, isn't for your mm. convenience. It's for the ox's health, because if the ox mm. is in a ditch, it's in distress. So the yeah. the uh, the flexibility oh, really to yeah to rescue the ox had nothing to do with the human being inconvenienced. It was to bless that's the really ox on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd like to go away and think about that. The stuff that Robbie did most of the creation care chapter, and the two things that he showed me that I'd never seen before that just blew my mind. One was to say there's been some research done on how costly it would be to allow the ox to eat the grain oh, yeah. while wow. he's playing the field. <laughs> and it's amazing. really substantial. <laughs> like it's really substantial. Like these are vulnerable. If these farmers are like little tiny mm-hmm. business owners, they are extremely vulnerable, right? Yeah. We're talking about a society and an economy where you might have devastating uh, crop loss three out of every 10 years, right? So these are vulnerable people. And God's saying, you got to, you got to make costly investments in making sure the animals that you work with are treated right. And then the one that really blew my mind was he showed me that in the year in the year in Leviticus 25, when he was talking about the Sabbath year, the food that you leave is for you. Like the basically, you you don't sow your field. Uh-huh. It's a it's a rest for the land, and then whatever grows of its own, you can eat. The poor can eat. Your ox <laughs> and your herd can eat. And the wild animals. Wow. So the wild animals. God says, I want you to manage your economic life in such a way that the wild animals are blessed by it. God bless those possums and raccoons. They didn't have to eat cat food. Right. (laughs) Right. I don't know all the ways that we need to listen to that today, but I know that Jesus is the one in Colossians that it says he made all things by him. All things were created and for him. All things were created. And he is reconciling all things. That's awesome, so that means man. that we ought to be caring about yeah. God's world. And then the last one is just the rest key, which says that our economic life honors God when it, it, it ceases every once in a while. Yeah. This idea that, that God calls us to receive rest from him. He frees us from our workaholism. We receive rest from him. And then he calls us to give rest to those whose livelihood depends on us. Hmm. And so the practice there is just practicing stopping, setting boundaries for ourselves. You know, where do we say thus no and thus far no further in our work life? And how can we make sure that the most vulnerable members of our society also have a thus far and no further mm-hmm. uh, in their work life? 
Uh, and, and so we talk about practicing Sabbath there. So that, that's a, as a, that was not a short overview. That was a long overview oh, that's good, of though. the book. <laughs> um, so, uh, on the, uh, the seventh year rest for the land, um, yeah. I, that seems to be, um, so, you know, I grew up in a tradition as a lot of people in the South did who went to church all the time, um, believing that, you know, the, the new heavens and the new earth was going to feature, you know, this amazing fireball of the former earth was just going to go up in like the death star blowing up Alderaan or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and that was going to be, uh, how God dealt with the earth because it was so corrupted, blah, blah, blah. And so, mm. you know, along with millions of other scholars who've read, I finally learned, Hey, that word actually means kind of renovate almost like you're renovating your house. Mm. You don't, you don't burn it mm. down to remodel it. You just, make some changes and it looks better and feels better. And so, um, and then that kind of spilled over to me into the creation mandate in Genesis. Mm. And then, uh, you know, the treatment of animals and all these kinds yes. of things. And, you know, and God forbid, if there's anybody listening who hasn't watched any documentaries on, uh, uh, factory farming and all those kinds of things, please, as soon as this is over, find a reputable documentary and watch what's going on. This is really important. I think, uh, because mm. it, 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 we can't stop what, you know, uh, ConAgra or somebody might be doing at some million, you know, bazillion dollar warehouse in, in the middle of Nebraska, but we can certainly change our shopping habits. As a matter of fact, you said something about going and buying from a farmer. I'm supposed to go to the farmer's market at four o'clock. And so, so I, that was a reminder to me. We have a farmer that we buy most of our meat from, uh, and, mm. uh, in the, you know, the seasons where, you know, lettuce and whatever's coming in, we try to buy from them because we we're, we're beginning to understand that, but the seventh year principle seems to be, I want humans to rest every, you know, every seven days. I want you to make sure you're not overdoing it with your animals. You respect even the ones you're going to eat. And then every seven years you need to give the land a rest. It, it, I want to bless mm. the land restoratively every seven years, mm. like I bless you restoratively every seven days. Is that too big of a reach? No, I no, I don't think so. I mean, the, the Old Testament talks about the land will have its Sabbath. You know, the land gets a Sabbath. Um, so I think that's absolutely right. And, and let me just say this, too, because um, of all the things we've said in the book, the creation care stuff is some of the stuff that gets the most pushback, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, I just want to make sure Robbie and I talked a lot about this. We tried to say this. I don't know if it's, if it's gotten heard or not, but, but, but we actually think we're, we're not trying to be like anti-science or anti-development or anti-technology, um, at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, I have friends that, that work on very small sort of Joel Salton style mm -hmm. kind of sustainable farms. But there are a lot of people trying to solve these ecological problems at large scales as well. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of my friends here in Memphis, Pete Nelson, uh, who has started this thing called Ag Innovation Group, I mean, he's trying to figure out how we bring the best technology and the best policies for human workers and for entrepreneurs and for uh, the environment. And, and how do we do all of that together? And, and it require, doing that requires a lot of sh in entrepreneurs. It yeah. requires a lot of investors and, and scientists and, and technicians. And, and so one thing, we're not trying to say like um, everybody needs to stop, you know, like, you know, go live in a tent or something. We're trying to say there's an opportunity <laughs> for God's people to bring all of their creativity and innovation 
to the task of an economy that is good news for people and good news for the land and good news for even the wild animals. Yeah. And that, that should be like an exciting summons too, um, rather than sometimes I think sometimes the, the uh, environmental movement can be so uh, sort of like negative and, and, and it can feel like such a, a rejection of, of innovation or whatever. And, and we're not trying to say that at all mm-hmm. um, or that there's a one size fits all solution or anything like that. Have you we seen, think this is exciting. Have you seen the movie uh, Temple Grandin or do you know who she is? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, Temple Grandin is uh, uh, an autistic. She's now a professor, I think, at Colorado State in agriculture area. But as she was uh, kind of getting started, um, she had a, tr- a real interest in animals, and so she uh, found mm. herself um, at these feedlots and these these slaughterhouses, and she was studying uh, cattle responses to being in these stalls and all these kinds of things. Anyway, mm. uh, in the movie version of her life, which starred Claire Danes as Temple Grandin, um, she designed this uh, totally this revolutionary way of getting cattle to move from place to place where they didn't get anxious and mm. they didn't get all bunched up and they weren't you know uh, having all kinds of problems and uh, all the way through to how they could get uh, their I don't know what you call it I guess vaccines or how they could be dipped without it causing them problems all these kinds of creative things mm. that eventually were adopted by an enormous amount of the cattle industry because it made sense to them and, and they understood what was going on she said yeah, in, yeah. in the movie again this is uh, she said in the movie she's not a vegetarian she had no problem with people eating meat she just said if we're going to eat these animals, then we ought to treat them with respect. Mm, yeah. And so her yeah. entire desire in designing this system was that we were treating the animals with respect. So um, I think when we're thinking about uh, all of creation, we've we've kind of lapsed. I, I, I really do think we've more adopted kind of the industrial revolution mindset of what mm. it means to eat and farm and all that kind of stuff. Unknowingly, those of us who aren't farmers, unknowingly, and we've forgotten what it was like if we ever knew, and a lot of us didn't, to grow your own food and to be dependent on mm. God for mm. rain and to be dependent on yeah. your neighbors yeah. for help to get your cows back in when the fence broke and all those kinds of things. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. when we... When we think about king, the king's economy, there is an awful lot of communal mm. aspect to it that we just do yes. we don't naturally get to in the, in the West. Yep, yep, that's right. Uh, so yeah, I want to ask uh, you. Brian, I want to ask you. I want to ask you this question. And if you need okay, to, if okay. you need to beg off of it, you feel free to do so. <laughs> um, a lot of people look at the laws of the Old Testament, especially the economic ones and try to make a direct application to society at large, particularly the role of the government. And a lot of mm. the things that we've talked about in this conversation, some people would say, and I don't know where you are on this. Um, I, I'm not even sure where I'm at on some of it, but <laughs> some people would argue <laughs> basically that any, you know, these laws in the old Testament, we should be trying to get them instituted. You know, uh, taxes should be used for this purpose or that purpose. And, uh, all, you know, restitution or reparations or all these kinds of things. So I'm not asking you specifically for an answer. I'm asking you generally, um, how do we apply the uh, the Old Testament texts that we're, we have a hard enough time applying it to ourselves as Christians? How do we understand them yeah. in a larger society 
that's thousands of years removed, that's technically a secular society in which we have influence but not control. How do we make this work, and and how much application do we make uh, to these in in kind of a a secular or a a governmental perspective, in your opinion? Yeah. So first let me say I think we have to be uh, non-legalistic, imaginative, and creative even in applying these Old Testament uh, images to ourselves, yeah. right? So every once in a while, someone will hear me say, like, will we'll think that I'm saying, you know, the Jew, the gleaning laws means you have to, like, sort of literally do it exactly this way, mm-hmm. right? And I think those laws that we find in the Bible are, um, you know, they're, they're ancient laws about an ancient society that was also a theocracy, it was in different in very, very key ways from our own. Mm-hmm. So I've really been helped by um, Chris, Christopher J.H. Wright, uh, who wrote The Mission of God and Old Testament Ethics for the People of God and, and many, many other things, um, and is is one of the leaders in what what was formerly John Stott Ministries. Okay. Um, and he talks about how these laws and stories are paradigms. Mm-hmm. Right. They're paradigms, not blueprints, but they're paradigms where we look at them and say, what all is going on here? And then how do we creatively apply that paradigm in our own day? How do we allow that paradigm to inspire us to live creatively and imaginatively in our own day? Okay. And so first thing to be said is that's what we're trying to do when we apply these Old Testament laws uh, to uh, us today yeah. and churches today and, and business today. And I think like, kind of like I said, with the year of Jubilee, you can actually see that this is how the early church read the old Testament yeah. too. Yeah. Right. So when, when Luke says, and there were no needy persons among them, and he's quoting from these debt forgiveness laws in Deuteronomy 15, he's not saying they were exactly replicating the Sabbath year of debt forgiveness as it was prescribed in Deuteronomy 15. That's good. He's saying that their way of life in this now urban community with a lot of displaced people who are not connected to the land, who've all just become Christians, creatively and imaginatively fulfilled what that law was pointing to. They, they, they deployed the paradigm in new and creative ways. Okay, so first thing to be said. Second thing to be said is I think hermeneutically for me, the paradigm is primarily for the community of faith. Okay. So the first level of application for these things is to the people of God Mm -hmm. individually and corporately because these are the just and righteous laws that God gives when he is king, right, as the king. Now, having said that, if you look at Deuteronomy, when God gives the people the law, he envisions the nations sort of looking over the fence at Israel's life and saying, what righteous, wise laws, right? Mm-hmm. And what other nations God is so close to him as theirs is, that he hears them when they pray. That's good. Right? So from the very beginning, there's this idea that what Israel's doing in this theocracy is unique to them, but it, it, is, it, it is unique in its, in its um, existence at this time and place, but it is a picture of God's heart of God's wise and righteous way for all of human society. Mm-hmm. So the paradigms do tell us something about the sorts of things that we ought to be caring about 
in every aspect of our society, right? And so the difficulty that I think we have with this is, um, as far as I can tell, there's no place in all of Scripture where the average member of the community of faith has as much political power as we all have. Yeah. There is no yeah. democracy where everybody goes to the voting booth, right? So like when we look at what, you know, um gets said about the state and the rulers and stuff, um like for Paul in Romans 13 for instance, the primary paradigm is submission, you know, submit to the ruler. Mm-hmm. But we and that's an important truth and I think he means that and we need to listen to that. But but we also need to recognize He's not in a society where he has a vote. Yeah, he had no and input. And he's not in a society. <laughs> he's and, and he's not in a society where any of they, them, the rulers, are us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we are in a society where every Christian in this country has the right to vote, has the right to be a part of the political process, and some of the political leaders are us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think we have to recognize that these these what God says is good for people. Uh, does tell us something about the sorts of goods we should seek for people in the public square. And that includes in how we do things in our neighborhood and in our businesses and in the government. Now, how you tease that out specifically, I think, is largely a question of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to figure out where are we? What's going on? What can we reasonably accomplish at this time and in this place? Um, but 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 let me say this, um, uh, and this is where I think our you know our book, which explicitly avoids talking about how you vote, right. actually I do think has something to contribute here because um, um, the way that Daniel seeks the common good and justice for the poor as an employee in the Babylonian administration depends on Daniel remembering his identity, remembering his name, resisting the imperial food, Mm -hmm. being committed to a certain practice of prayer, being a part of a community that knows when to say no to the culture around it. Mm -hmm. So our book is about economic discipleship. And so one thing I would say is, I think part of the reason why Christians have contributed so little to the conversation about what uh, so little that's useful mm-hmm. about what it would look like to create more just, prosperous, flourishing economies in our political uh, economy and our political society is that we have actually not become disciples of Jesus. Yeah. If we were becoming wise, righteous disciples of Jesus uh, in our economic lives, we would have more to contribute to how to actually apply what we find in Scripture in the public square. Yeah, nobody, or, or nobody's, provocatively, look, yeah, nobody's looking over the fence at us. That's right. And, and, and this is the way we provocatively put it in the book. Unless we're becoming the uncommonly good people of Jesus, we're not going to have all that much to contribute to the common good. Yeah. Okay? I recognize that's an, a provocative way of putting it. But, but we've actually seen this in history, right? Like, I mean, as I understand the history, things like public hospitals emerged from Christian experiments, Right. Emerging from Christian communities. Yeah, so there right. have been times where Christians have been innovators and those innovations have given gifts to the world. Right. That's and amazing. that's that that can happen now. You know, so, so on the one hand, we're trying to say 
don't jump straight to the partisan political vote question. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're saying if we follow Jesus, he's going to lead us into some of that tricky water, but with more to contribute because we are have become more faithful followers of him. I've been talking to Michael Rhodes. He's the co-author with Robbie Holt of Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. You can order it through uh, the episode notes on this week's broadcast, or episode, I guess. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Now, you're on Twitter. How can people follow you there? Yeah, uh, I'm at, at Michael J. Rhodes on Twitter, and I'm also on Facebook, although I don't do that quite as much. Yeah. And uh, you can follow me there. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marty. It's been a real privilege. This was fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at Uncommentary Pod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria. <laughs>